I'm really excited about introducing Blaine Smith on this episode. Blaine is a West Point graduate and a former Special Forces officer. He served combat tourism in both Iraq and Afghanistan and was Distinguished Honor Graduate of the Army's Ranger School. He's earned numerous military awards, including three Bronze Stars and one with V-Device for Valor. He's currently a management consultant, and we're really excited to have him on this show. He shares with us a story first about his background in the military service, and then he talks about leadership and his acronym that he came up with, CARE. At this time, though, I also want to give a big shout out to all of our Patreon supporters, and those are the people who have gone to patreon.com backslash mentors for mail. So that's our Patreon site where they've become donors and supporting this show, and especially to Jonathan Lambert, who continues to be uh, one of our leading donors, and really appreciate that, Jonathan. So at uh, this time, sit back, relax, and get ready to enjoy another episode of Mentors for Military. This is the Mentors for Military podcast. All right. Well, first off, uh, Blaine, welcome to the Mentors for Military podcast. It's uh, really good to have you on here. Yeah, I appreciate you guys having me on. Yeah, you bet, man. And I'm joined by uh, Eric Martin, and um, you guys already know one another, but I want to dive into you, some of your military history and tell me a little bit about, uh, I know you, you're originally from Florida and the Tampa area and everything, but what caused you to go into the military and um, you know what was it about that? Did you have family history or something of that nature and a little bit about some of your military career? Sure. Yeah. So I, I, my family does not have a, a rich military history. My dad served a little bit from 69 to 71 during the Vietnam era. Um, but no career military people, not much military service. Hmm. Um, a lot of sort of Midwestern blue collar heritage. That's really where I come from. And um, frankly, I joined the military because of West Point. I was looking at where I was going to go to college when I was a kid. And I wanted to go to a good school. And I wanted to go to a place that was going to challenge me because I I knew enough as a teenager to know that if I went somewhere that didn't challenge me, I would just sort of regress to the mean, if yeah. you will. Yeah, I would, I would do okay, but I wouldn't do anything great with my life. And so West Point provided me a few things. It provided me a great opportunity uh, to go to school. It provided me with something I knew was going to kick my ass and, and challenge me. And, um, and frankly, the price was right. I grew up in a very sort of middle class, lower middle class family. And um, the idea of me going to Duke or somewhere like that just was probably wasn't going to happen or would have happened with a lot of student debt maybe. And so, you know, West Point was a way where I could frankly get a world-class education and carve out a really good future for myself and kind of, you know, climb the ladder a little bit in a way that, uh, that made sense. And so the military service component of it just sort of came along with that. I, we're looking at like 1996, 97. And so pretty quiet time from a military perspective. And like, you know, I'm not ashamed to say I, I didn't join the military to, to fight in the war or to do anything crazy on that front. I was looking like a lot of like a, yeah, a lot of young people. I was looking to better my life, get an education, and um, you know I graduate in June of two thousand one, thinking my military service is, is going to be one thing, and um, you know probably five years just do my duty and get on out, and then a couple months later nine eleven happens. Yep, the whole world changes. And, you know, I, I ship off to Fort Hood. I'm a tank platoon leader, eventually become a scout platoon leader. I start seeing all these SF guys doing cool shit in Afghanistan. And, you know, and I'm thinking, I, what do I got to do to get over there? And um, I went on a tour to Iraq in 2004 as a scout platoon leader. And I had the good fortune of doing a lot of ops with the guys from 5th Special Forces Group. And this is in the, kind of the early stages of that war. And, uh, you know, they were driving around and low-vis vehicles, wearing civilian clothes, had paid informants. I mean, they were doing lots and lots of cool shit. And being able to meet those guys and just see how impressive they were. And also, is as important, I was seeing the results of the work they were doing. And I was like, wow, this is way better than driving around Baghdad conducting, you know, movement to IED. Um, <laughs> if we're going to win this thing, it's going to be this way. And so, you know, I put in my packet. And right when I got home from Iraq in late 2004, I went to SF Selection. Um, a few weeks after I got home, was fortunate enough to kind of get my way through it. Went straight to the Q course, and then uh, you know graduated, got into third group. Tempo, you know, stayed pretty fast. Oh yeah, and then did Afghanistan. Yeah. Um, as a team leader in third group, was fortunate. I did almost three years as a team leader there, which I really lived the dream. That's a rarity. Yeah, yeah. I'm a military officer. I really lived the dream. I was a 
platoon leader. Then I was a scout platoon leader for almost two years. Uh, I did almost three years of platoon leader time, went to the Q course, and I spent almost three years commanding a detachment. And then I got out of the military uh, in early 2010. So I got to do everything I joined the military to do and then some. Um, I frankly, I had two young kids at the time and had been gone all the time. And so between that and the fact that um, I really didn't want to do any of the jobs <laughs> that laid ahead of me as a major or, or whatever, I was kind of at the eight, nine year mark and I had to decide like, hey, do I want to stay in this thing and, and stay on the ride or this is probably my last chance to sort of punch out and have a have a legitimate kind of civilian career. At least that's the way I felt about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I made the somewhat hard decision to separate. Um, it was difficult kind of emotionally. It was also just sort of difficult, like I don't know what the hell I'm going to do with myself. Um, but made made the call and yeah, that was it. So that's sort of that's sort of that part of the story anyway. You know, I know, of course, you know, Special Forces and Third Group's a large organization. But have you ever heard of a guy by the name of Rudy Lindsay? I know that he does a lot of work. He was a warrant officer and he does a lot of work on the outside now contract side. So I've never just didn't know if you ever ran into that guy. It's not ringing a bell. There's no telling if I did. But I'll tell you, even even in the groups, Eric, you know this. If the guy's not on your team or not in the hallway with you, if there's a good chance between deployments and training and stuff, you just never never come across them. Yeah. yeah. If you didn't graduate the Q course with them half the time or if they weren't a friend of somebody on your team, yeah, it was it was a rarity to know people on the outside of that of your company, let alone a battalion. Yeah. He does a lot of uh, contract work now, I think, doing uh, train-ups and stuff like that to see. I know he still does some kind of secret squirrel stuff and helping units get ready and all that kind of – I just uh, – uh, you know, I don't know what all he's engaged in, you know, that cool guy stuff. So yeah, that's it, the warrant officer move. You know, you go off and try to do some cool stuff that no one, no one's really ever quite sure what you're doing, <laughs> you know, or if you're doing <laughs> anything. Yeah, yeah, right. like, oh, I'm not sure. He's a warrant. So that's sort of how they roll. Uh, I just want to stay and stay on the team forever. <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah, basically that's what it was. Yeah. So one of the reasons that I pulled uh, or was trying to get a hold of Blaine to get on uh, here, and I I would love for you to kind of recap a little bit if you wouldn't mind. Um, I I had seen a story uh, when you were uh, first doing stuff with GORUCK based on like the – things that had happened on your team. And I know some of it was pretty tragic, but I I think that you did an amazing job with being able to use that tragedy and turn it into something really positive to show people how to build, you know, yourself up and, 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 you know, break free of those, those hard times. Yeah, sure. So we could, we could go on for hours about this, but the, the short version of the story is, um, when I was a detachment commander at third group, we, we started off with a team that had a lot of turnover and frankly, didn't have a great reputation. And you know, the deal, like if your team doesn't have a good reputation, you don't get good missions, that kind of thing. And so, but I was new and I just worked my butt off in the Q course for two years. And I was like, I'll be damned if we're going to have a a shitty team and not get good missions. (laughs) And I had a lot of new guys who felt the same way. And so we embarked on a journey of like, you know, everything from like hard PT, very competitive range days. You know, if guys went to a course, they was expected they would be the honor grad of the course and come back. Like, we spent a couple of years um, really working hard to build a tight team, and we were really like a family, and became a, a trusted team with a good reputation in the battalion. Like, not a, not afraid to say it. Like, we were one of the better teams for sure, and ended up getting a really challenging mission when we went downrange to Afghanistan at a at a remote fire base that was really hot. And um, you know, we were there a month or so, and it was actually going pretty well. We were working hard, but making a dent and already, you know, the task force headquarters, like those guys are out there doing it right. They're kicking ass. And then boom, actually it was a year ago yesterday, uh, or 10 years ago yesterday, rather 10 years ago yesterday, wow. Mark small, one of my medics was shot, uh, shot, killed instantly by a sniper on a, on a mission. And it really rocked our world because we were, we were a good team. Mark was a brother to us. And, uh, mm-hmm. we thought, Oh shit, like, this is not how we saw this deployment going. We're like a month in, and, you know, we mourn the loss of him as much as you can while you're downrange. And then we got back out and yeah. got after it. And about a week later, eight days later, actually, um, we're on a mission, a joint mission with some Czech Special Forces guys. And just a massive IED goes off and just decimates a whole truck full of guys on my team. So um, three other guys in my ODA, our Air Force JTAC, and, uh, and one of our interpreters, all, all KIA. And one guy seriously wounded. And it was just kind of like this moment where... We thought we were a great team. We thought we were doing everything right, you know, but the enemy gets a vote 
and I'm and I'm the commander, so I feel obviously very very responsible for what is going on here. And um, yeah, it was tough, but we still had like you know almost the whole deployment still to go. And so we had to have yeah. some really hard talks about like, do we stay out, out here at this firebase? Do we need to pull back to Kandahar for a while and refit? Like, what what do we need to do here? And you know, I eventually talked to some of the guys on my team, and you know, I trusted all of them, and we made the call. I called back to the time and said, "Hey, you should send another team out here. We'll stay for a while. We should go back to Kandahar and run the commando mission, where we got a bit of a training cycle. Um, where yeah, we to kind of plus back up with some guys, get our legs under us, get some confidence." And then send us back out to hit some targets, you know, and kind of get some revenge and, yep. uh, and just sort of get this thing back on the wheels because not only was my team obviously really sh- shaken by this, I was as a leader, frankly, and, you know, I'm thinking we got to, we got to continue the mission, but we're just wrecked emotionally. We've got families back home who are now oh, going yeah. to memorials and we've got gold star wives and parents, you know, and then all of, all of the wives and girlfriends of the guys who are still on the team are just terrified at this point. Yeah. And, uh, it's a, you know, it was, a, I don't know that I'll ever have a leadership challenge <laughs> quite like that one. I mean, to be candid, I had guys on my team that just weren't particularly interested in going back outside the wire for a while. Um, yep. I've seen that. So it was, uh, and like, I look, I wanted to protect them, but I also felt like, well, I'm, I'm the commander. I have some obligation to the mission here. And so it was a very delicate balance for me. I felt very lonely for a while there. And when one of the guys that was killed was my team sergeant, who was really my ranger buddy and like I trusted and we were very tight and was a very well-respected guy. And so, um, it was, it was a tough stretch. And then, um, you know, we ended up doing okay through the deployment, I think, but then we came home and, and shortly thereafter it was time for me to rotate off the team. And, and then we've got to, you know, we've got to sort of revisit all of this because meanwhile these guys are getting buried and memorialized while we're still downrange in the fight we come home i I actually had a kid like a week after i got home Mm. right and so we're all kind of like hey we gotta we don't want to be sad thinking about that we want to be happy to be home and move on with our lives and so most of the guys on my team myself included just sort of like stuffed it and we never really dealt with it uh not in a healthy way probably uh, some of us for a long time and that was um that was that was tough. I mean, I remember having to give kind of the eulogy of the memorial to my team sergeant when they did the, the dedication of the stones at Third Group HQ, and I was just a just a mess, just a total shit show trying to you know get through that. I, I wrote what I thought was a pretty good talk, and I just couldn't hardly get through it. So it was uh, it was it was tough times for me and a lot of the guys on my team, and, and a tough way for me to kind of segue out of the military because I'd kind of planned to get out, but I certainly didn't plan to get out under those circumstances. And so the, the context felt very different. I imagine because my Iraq deployment went relatively well. I mean, it was a year of hooking and jabbing and killing bad guys. And like my guys all yeah. made it home and this SF deployment just did not go that way. And it really felt like, Oh man, I just, we went over, we went down range. I, I basically failed as a commander and now I'm quitting. Right. And so that was a, that's not really objectively true, but man, it, it sure felt that way for a long it, time. Yeah. How did you guys end up dealing with the closure? Did you guys ever get that closure as a team? It doesn't sound like you did, but did you ever bring the group back together, even as you know civilians or whatever have you, to say, okay, hey, we gotta we gotta get some closure on this? Yeah, sort sort of. So we were really lucky in the sense that Mark Small, his family and his fiance at the time, they they mobilized that whole, the whole town he was from near Philadelphia just mobilized. And they started a nonprofit. His his fiance Amanda Charney, is an amazing woman. She's a speech language pathologist, and so she started a nonprofit called Small Steps in Speech to kind of honor him and to help kids with speech impediments and disabilities. And they immediately put on a 5K that summer. We're talking months after Mark was killed, right after we got home from Afghanistan. And the whole team just got a GSA van and drove up from Bragg to Philadelphia, like you know, ten of us or whatever it was. And we ran in this five. We, we drank like a gallon of bourbon the night before, and then we ran this five k, <laughs> and got to got to spend a bunch of time with his mom and dad and family, sisters and brothers, and it was really emotional and and stung in some ways. But then they they kept having this five k every year for ten years. This past August was the tenth one. Yeah. And so not every guy on the team could always make it, but at least every year there was this one weekend on the calendar where, as many of us as could, it was as few as like two or three of us some years, and and more other years. I, I made it to nine out of the 10 um, and it was, and every year it changed a little bit. So it got to be a little less painful, a little less sad and a little more joyful 
with each passing year and like, you know, kids are being born and you're watching them grow up and I started bringing my kids and it sure. was, it was pretty special. So at least we had that. Um, going back to just like, uh, looking at it from this like perspective of, you know, your failure or whatever. I think that that is unfortunately, um, one of the things that we, as you know, soldiers kind of hold on to. And I know, especially when you're in those leadership positions, you, you, we tend to blame ourselves when, when something like that happens. And it's not necessarily our fault, but it's, but we are human at the same time to grasp that and be like, you know, what woulda, coulda, shoulda. But, you know, at the end of the day, sometimes when they're being called home, you know, so to speak, that's, that's what's going to happen. Yeah, for sure. And I, you know, again, I, even though I sort of objectively knew that I was just doing the best I could and, 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 and those kinds of things, it just, it sat with me for a long time. And I think the fact that I got out so soon after was tough yeah. because, um, <clears throat> excuse me, there's a, there's a, a saying on the Yusasak Memorial wall there at Fort Bragg and the kind of the black granite were all the names of those who've uh, fallen from army special operations since I think nine 11, but it says live a yeah. life worthy of their sacrifice which I think is a great thing to consider Heck I yes. think for, for me personally, I probably overdid it for a couple of years. And when I got out of the military and was working in the private sector and, and, you know, making a really good living and like wearing a tie every day, like I just, I just beat myself up mercilessly thinking like, what are you doing really to live a life worthy of their sacrifice? Like you're not doing shit. You're just making money and living in a big house. And like, you're not doing anything worthy of their sacrifice. And I just, I just really brutalized myself. And, you know, finally got to the point where I went, I, you know, I went to the VA and like went to the post-deployment clinic and I got to see a counselor. And the wow. first two, the first two things he said to me were basically changed my whole life. He said, number one, you're normal. Like you've just described to me the story of kind of who you are and where you're coming from. And like, holy shit, that is, that is some brutal stuff you've been through. And the things that you're feeling and experiencing are totally normal for a guy that's been yeah. through what you've been through. So congratulations, you're normal. And I was like, whew, Okay. <laughs> That made me feel better. <laughs> and then, and the second thing he reminded me was like, you didn't kill Dave and Mark and Jeremy and Tim. The Taliban killed those guys. You didn't do it. Yeah. And so I was like, oh, okay. You, you're right. And so it, it was it was helpful. And I, you know, I had a, a CIA buddy of mine actually, who I met working downrange doing some interagency stuff. He said, uh, you know, you, you may always feel responsible, but there'll be a day when you stop feeling guilty. Yeah. I was like, oh, yeah, okay. So all, all of those things sort of rolled around in my head for a couple of years. And, you know, my life wasn't probably what it could have, should have been for a stretch. But eventually, I, you know, frankly, I kind of sacked up and went and got a little help. And it was huge for me. And it and, makes and, a difference. And, yeah. And from that moment, let's call it 2012, maybe, things really took a, a turn for the better. And uh, I'm glad that, glad that I did. Yeah. I'm glad you did too, man. Yeah, I mean, we hear this story quite often, actually, you know, especially within the soft SF community and, you know, where guys uh, experience uh, some form of post-traumatic stress. And if they don't go and get the right type of help, in some cases, that means you've got to go back and back again to different therapists because the right one, you've got to run into the right one, I should say. You, you, you know, it, it may not be the first one. It may not be the second one, but eventually you're going to find someone that's going to be able to give you that aid and everything. And we're, we're majorly aligned with a couple of nonprofits that really circle around that type of um, effort. Of course, you're associated with Team Red, White, and Blue that tries to build that camaraderie and that team esprit de corps type of thing that you lose, uh, the connection from separating from the military. All of those things are a part of that healing process, you know. Yeah, certainly. I mean, you've got staying connected with your friends, getting connected with your community, going, getting professional help if you need to. I mean, these are all things that, you know, guys like us need to do. They're not really optional. If you think about it, like I tell people all the time, like, look, you got to stay in shape. Don't, don't get yep. lazy. Don't get fat. Yeah. Don't get isolated. And if you need a, a little bit of help, you, you need to go get it because, you know, prevention, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And I, and I found that to be true in my own life, you know, many times over. <laughs> Guilty. <laughs> what were some of the things that you learned in terms of, you know, just leadership styles of, you know, building teams? And I think that one of the things that people struggle with, even in the private sector, is getting cohesion, getting teams to collaborate together, um, not just your own team, but getting other 
forces if you're in different, uh, especially special forces. You're going to be working, like you said, with uh, guys from the Air Force. You're going to be working with guys from uh, multinational services and everything. And so it's very important to get that cohesion, that collaboration. So what were some of the things that you learned as a leader uh, in being able to do that? Yeah, for sure. So these kinds of things make all the difference. Every organization is just a collection of people. Uh, and so when I was a, when I was on a team, I basically discovered this, this concept of, of trust being kind of at the center of all of it. And, um, I, I thought back a lot since then about every team I've been on, every organization I've had the privilege to, to be a part of or lead. And at the end of the day, if, if people genuinely trust you and they genuinely trust each other, um, you can do a lot of things wrong and still figure out a way to find a way to win. Um, and then the opposite is also true or the inverse is true in that, like you can do a lot of things right. And if there's not real trust there, it'll break down and you'll still find a way to fail. Yeah. And so if it's not real I've, trust. I think that's a key part, yeah. right? Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And so like what I think is actually tricky is that we can't just like shake hands and say, Hey, we trust each other. We can't snap yeah. our fingers and be like, well, <laughs> trust is the key to this whole thing. So let's just have trust and we're good. <laughs> and so I, th I thought a lot about like, okay, well in that case, what actually gets teams to trust you. Like as a leader, how do you earn right. trust? And amongst an organization, how do you have trust? And like, I have this sort of silly acronym that I always keep in mind. And I think there are big, four big components. If like you guys will indulge me, I'll just share them. So, sure. No, that love this. Yeah, please. Uh, so the first one I always say is candor, um, which I think candor is more than honesty, right? I mean, I think honesty is just sort of table stakes, but I think candor is a sort of proactive and real version of honesty that allows you to have uh, hard conversations it allows you to bring up things that need to be brought up and not just let them fester. Um, and, and, and real candor is done in a way where it's coming from a place of care and you're not, it's not, it's not being an asshole. It's not, you know, it's not just being blunt. Um, it's, it's, it's yeah. being honest and forthright for the, for the purpose of, of moving things forward. And like, as an example on my team, I used to tell my guys, like, there's no open door policy here. Like it's not okay to come talk to me. If you need to talk to me about something, we're a family. My door is open and you have an obligation to come talk to me. If you have right. misgivings, if you have concerns, if you're pissed, it's not your right to come talk to me. It is your obligation as a member of this team to come talk to me. Uh, and I will always listen as as the team leader. And I think that's a totally I, different perspective. Um, I love that you bring that up because more <laughs> often than not, people that have open door policies – really don't have an open door that or an open mind in this case. No, I totally agree. And I've actually even commented on this very subject uh, in the past about how I wish that a lot of leaders, and it seems to be more in the military side than it is in the private sector, um, would get rid of what they call the open door policy because they use that more as a front to say that I'm a good leader because my door is always open. And we all three know that's not true. You know, that it's a pol <laughs> if you have to create a policy to state that you have an open door, that's already something, you know, something's already wrong. Yeah, to totally agree. So candor, I think, is sort of underappreciated or, or perhaps misunderstood sometimes. Yeah. Uh, the second one, you kind of mentioned, you said it's got to be real. I think authenticity is huge. We're lucky now, I think, yep. in the kind of in sort of the leadership pantheon now, people are starting to talk about authenticity. Um, I think that one's also kind of lip serviced a lot of times, though. And again, it's not just, hey, I'm just being me so I can do and say whatever I want. I think authenticity <laughs> for me means that people really, you're giving people the, the most real version of yourself. And so that when you say something or do something or intend something, they know where it's coming from and they know that what they're seeing is what they're getting. I think that generates a lot of trust because no one ever wonders if what you're saying is really what you're saying or if there's some underlying meaning or hidden agenda, or if there's something you're trying to manipulate. Or the other big thing for me is like, I think just kind of owning your shit. Like your your pros, your cons, your strengths, your weaknesses. I mean, I think as a team leader, again, from a leadership perspective, I was always very, very happy to do every single thing I could and compete with my team, knowing some things I was going to be able to win and other things I was not going to be able to win, but I was willing to learn. And I was willing to show my ass, frankly, right? So if we're learning yep. radios, you know, if you're a lieutenant out there somewhere, you're a new team leader and it's time to, to learn the radios it's much better to just let someone know that you don't know how the hell to program the radio or put the comsec in or whatever and learn how to actually do it than to pretend that you know what you're doing. That level of authenticity lets you into people. They start to trust you 
admitting you don't know something actually can earn you a lot more trust than certainly pretending you know everything. So I think that's huge. I hear that. And I also hear vulnerability. You know what I mean? So leaders nope. actually have to be vulnerable. They have to expose themselves. And that's one of the hardest things, I think, when you when you start moving through the rank, you begin to believe that you should present an image of which you do know everything. But what you're describing there is being authentic and saying, hey, listen, guys, I really don't know this or or expose yourself in such a way that it makes you very vulnerable if you believe that people are going to come attack you, you know, but that yeah. again, that's having that confidence and stuff, too. Sure. But when when you it's and it's a process, but once your team has established a level of trust, it's, it certainly opens everybody up to start saying like, oh, hey, I also don't know how to do that. Right. Because they they know that no one's going to just tear them down. E- equal footing. Uh, yeah, yeah. 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 Exactly. And, and I think it's funny that you bring up authenticity because, you know, that's obviously become a buzzword among, you know, social media platforms and in, uh, in society in general. Uh, but I mean – it is. It's just being real, but being, you know, being able to expose the fact that, yeah, you know what, I've got some, uh, I've got some setbacks about my life, but here's what I'm doing to fix those things. And I'm willing to learn and develop. Sure. I mean, I, I've, I think I've been able to establish more trust and be able to positively influence way more people over the last five or six years by having, by being really honest and saying, look, I, I got divorced in 2012. Like, I struggle. My kids share time between homes. It's very difficult for me. Like I struggled when I got out of the military and, and but I've also had some successes, which I'm also proud to talk about. And so yeah. I, I think it, it gives people that permission to be like, oh, okay. You know what? I actually too <laughs> have some of these things. <laughs> it and, provides uh, the humanity to it all. Yeah. yeah so I, I think that level of authenticity is, is huge if you want to have real trust. Um, the next one I think is also highly underrated and not talked about a lot these days. And uh, it's reliability. Um, I think you think about being on a team, you th- think about being on an SF team, you've got 12 guys, three, four man assault cells, every single dude, including the, the team leader and the warrant, and the team sergeant have to be fit, have to be capable, have to know how to put a breaching charge on a door. I mean, they have, you have to be able to do what you say you're going to do. And I think you get out in the, in the civilian sector or in regular life, I think reliability is highly underrated. I mean, you yeah. want to really trust somebody, show up at the airport when you say you're going to be there to pick somebody up, right? If, if, you, if you land here at the Tampa airport and I say I'm going to come get you and, I, and, I, and I'm not there, and I'm not there two or three times, like, I might be the nicest guy in the world, but like at some point, it, trust is going to erode. And if yeah. I say I've got something to you by COB Friday, I've got to get it to you. And I just think, shit, if we're talking about trust – Let's, I mean, vulnerability and authenticity and all these things are great, but if I'm really going to trust you, you got to deliver. You got to do what you say you're going to do. And it seems so obvious, but like I bring it up because I just don't think enough people are talking about it as like, this is still a really core component of being able to trust somebody is them being reliable. Well, we talk a lot in the military about got your six, you know, I've got your back, all this kind of stuff. And when you, when you get down to it, that's, it's, it's not always the case, you know, with, uh, with. Regular people, let alone veterans, you know, I mean, veterans, we try to put that image out there and everything. But the truth of the matter is not everybody is reliable. There's a human nature and a human component that goes into this. In some cases, it's about how they were raised or where they came from, their, you know, their environment and everything else that led to that point. And if they haven't had good role models or individuals that that taught them these things that you're describing along the way, they're going to be less reliable. So they may not have your back. And for a team as small as what you guys are talking about, that is where it becomes an issue of life or death, truly. Because if you can't count on the guys to the left and right of you, you've got a problem. That's right. I mean, the most the most kind of stark and obvious example is you assault the building. I'm the one man going through the door. I'm, I'm breaking left. I can't do that confidently and get a muzzle in the corner if I don't know the guy the two man is right behind me and he's breaking right and doing the right thing because I'm exposing my back to whatever's, whatever the hell's going on in that side of the room, right? So reliability, I think, is, is absolutely huge and, and probably massively underappreciated right now. Um, and the last one is, is one, again, that we're seeing a lot now uh, in the vernacular and it's getting a lot of lip service, but I still don't think people fully embrace it, which is empathy. Um, I think if you want someone to really trust you or you want to have trust amongst a group of people – if you don't have the ability to take someone else's perspective, it's, it can be very, very difficult. Because like you said, everyone's got a different background. Everyone has a different perspective and a different experience. And I think especially if you want to be a leader in a high-performing team, 
you've got to be able to sit down with the guys and gals that you're working with and when they're having a hard time and not just blast them because you think they're, they're, they're failing or not think that their cares or concerns are silly. I mean, take a moment to think about where they're coming from. What's mm-hmm. their experience like? You know, I, I say this all the time in the community here is like, it's very hard to hate someone that you actually know, mm-hmm. you know? So when you think about socioeconomic race, class, you know, all these kinds of things, like yep. most of the, the, the stuff that's just getting, you know, the quick kind of soundbite stuff. Yeah. It's the ignorance. You, yeah. you don't know anybody. Right. Because I, I tell you what, if you did, if you had lunch once a week with somebody from a different part of town, you'd start to understand where they're coming from. And even if you still yeah. agree to disagree, you could at least appreciate their perspective and like you could learn to have real trust even if you don't agree. Um, and I think you get a team of high performers like SF guys as an example or salespeople or whatever, big personalities. Opinions will differ. Yeah. Heads will butt. It's absolutely going to happen in a team room or, in, or a boardroom. Egos, but, yep. Sure, but if you, if, you can, if you can take a step back and have a little bit of empathy – you can at least say, well, I can appreciate where they're coming from. And so I'm not going to like take that first gut reaction. I'm going to have that little bit of space between my emotional <laughs> response and the words and the, res- and, the and the actions that follow. Um, so again, if you're on a team that everyone can appreciate each other's perspective, it's just a lot easier to have trust because you know, no one's going to just dismiss you know, what's going on from your foxhole. I think that's harder in today's society, mainly because of social media and the, the speed of information. I mean, let's face yep. it, it, it gets harder and harder, I think, for individuals who've not been brought up to think, you know, about empathy and everything and uh, about others and their other viewpoints and everything else. And if all they've been brought up into is that an opinion of a specific race, color, creed, sex, whatever the case may be, then they tend to have less empathy. And so I think it's going to become harder. This is just my personal opinion. I think as uh, individuals grow in that type of society and become leaders, it's going to be harder for them to communicate, have empathy, and, and you know maybe even candor, authenticity, because they, don't, they may not know who they are. They, they haven't really search this you know below the surface uh so to speak just my own personal perspective of things but yeah well i like that i mean i think most of us if you're really thoughtful at some point you realize you basically just have co-opted your parents political and societal views and they may be great and you may go the rest of your life agreeing with them but at some point i think it's smart to step back and say challenge is important to me what right. do i actually yeah yeah. believe what has my experience in iraq afghanistan kuwait you know kazakhstan Alabama, you know, what is my experience through the world actually taught me about people? And do I still believe what I believed when I was 19? You know, do I still believe what I believe when I was 30? I mean, it, it changes. It, it Absolutely. And so when you think about somebody, especially who served in the military, who now has a more worldly uh, view of things, I mean, let's face it, if you spend let's say eight, 10 years in the military, you probably had, you know, multiple deployments. You've been in uh, several installations. You've run across people of all parts of the world, uh, all parts of the U S for that matter. You've heard uh, people from different uh, demographic backgrounds, the whole bit. And when you pull all that together, you go back home, you're going to be very different than the people who've been, you know, been staying in that small bubble. Uh, and, sure. and I think you that's gotta have empathy for them too, y- you do. in their experience. Right. right. And so that at that point though, I think I, I like the fact that you're saying at some point along the way, and maybe multiple times too, Blaine is what you're saying. You need to yeah. constantly reassess yourself and how you view everything around you, because then by gaining more empathy and understanding of others, um, you can just become a better person and a better leader all the way around. Sure. I mean, you want to talk about leadership. I, I'm a consultant now, and so I work with a variety of organizations and I'm kind of on a variety of things. But one of the things I always pick up on right away is uh, oftentimes the leader of the organization, the CEO, the managing partner, whomever, is, they want to bring me in to help because other people have problems. Mm-hmm. You know, I need, I need to bring you in. You need to talk to him, him and her because they're not taking responsibility or they're you know overwhelmed or they need to level up or whatever. And I'm like, oh, OK, that's cool. And so I start talking to these folks and what I realized pretty quickly is like, (laughs) you need to talk to these people. You need to address your game because (laughs) they're busting their ass or they don't have clear guidance or the mission's changing all the time and they don't know what's a priority or you're dumping too much work on them and these kinds of things. And uh, I see uh, way too many times uh, 
if leaders of organizations are willing to bring in a consultant to help out, they're almost always wanting you to help their people. And it's very rare, not, not, not never. I, I have a couple organizations I work with where I work with the CEO directly, but it's like, hey man, you got to realize if the team is dysfunctional, it may have something to do with you and uh, you might want to yeah. consider, you know, what's, what's the perspective of your people? What are they going through every day? Instead of just looking at it from your perspective and saying, hey, they're not meeting mission, they're not meeting my expectations, they're complaining too much or, or whatever. Yeah, because yeah, it usually starts from the top. Yeah, definitely does. I mean, and usually it's the top that actually goes and hires a lot of the second tier uh, leaders. And some cases, it's those second tier leaders that may be uh, having the problems because they don't understand the the vision themselves to be uh, paint the right picture and the whole bit. Um, like you, I do the same thing in terms of consulting. And, and I find that communication is a problem across um, different organizations as well as up and down. And, and we we see the same thing within the military. And we love to be able to say even on in our military service that we had great communication and coordination and everything else to get things done. Well, you might want to sit back and really think about that for a moment because you probably didn't have very good experiences inside the military and you're not going to find any difference when you go out into the private sector because in the private sector they have even bigger problems uh, with communications. I mean, they they create barriers, uh, silos. Uh, you know what I'm talking about, Blaine. I mean, silo communities and the challenges that go with that. Yeah, so I'd say there is such a thing in the world as oversharing, but I think it's very difficult from a leadership perspective to overcommunicate. Mm, yeah. um, and I, look, and I I experienced this myself at times where I felt like if you hire really smart people, if the people that work for you are very very capable, you know, you don't want to get in the weeds, right? You don't. I don't want to. I don't want to micromanage. Like it's like it's almost like a slur. Nobody wants to be called a micromanager, right? And so I think what happens a lot of times is people err too far on the other side. And they're like, well, hey, I'm just going to let them go because I don't want to get in the weeds and whatever. And I think that's a great way to screw up your organization because I found this to be true everywhere. Even great leaders want to be led. Mm-hmm. If you are assigned to be someone's leader or manager or whatever, yep. you have a responsibility and obligation to lead the people that work for you and work with you. And they want to be led. They want clear priorities. Yeah. They want guidance. They, they want feedback. Yep. They, they want, want accountability. Feedback. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They need it and they deserve it. And I think way too many leaders out there are saying, hey, my people are smart. I'm going to let them do their thing. And I don't want to be a micromanager. And I've really had to shift myself back much more the other direction to where one of the things I did at Team RWB once we got to have like 30 or 35 employees is I wrote an email every single week. I called it the ED Weekly. And I wrote them an email every week. And I just it was so simple. I would say, here's what I was up to last week. And I want you guys to know about who I'm meeting with, who I'm talking to things I'm thinking about. Uh, here's what I'm up to this week, right? So here's where I'll be and who I'm talking to and what I'm doing. And a lot of it was just like, hey, I met with the guys at Bank of America last week and they they think we're doing great. And I get to hear that. You know, I go speak on a panel at something at USAA or, you know, wherever, Wounded Warrior Project. And like, they don't get to do that always with me. So I want them to know, yeah. you know, what a great job they're doing and how that's being received out in the space. And then at the end of every one, I would write, you know, like two to 500 words maybe about just a leadership topic. And I just kept a running list of topics on my whiteboard of things that like were kind of stuck in my brainstem. And every week I would just take one of them and I would just write a little bit about it. And it wasn't perfect. It wasn't like a great, uh, you know, it wasn't like the New York Times op-ed, but it was like, hey, here's something <laughs> I'm thinking about, you know, let's, let's talk about abundance mindset this week and what that means. Or let's talk about communication or whatever. And what I found, I, as soon as I started sending it to the board, Every member of the staff, we did a monthly update to the board. Every single month, here's everything that's going on. What wow. are your questions? And from finance, development, you, you name it. And we just started to hit our stride at that point. And it was as simple as, look, we're just not communicating enough. Everybody, these are yeah. some people, they want to know what's going on. They deserve to know what's going on. Like, you're not hassling them. Like, I don't want to fill your inbox with extra emails. Like, that's bullshit. Like, are you kidding me? Every single person on the team was very happy, I think so, to get one email from the executive director every week that said, here's what's up. Here are my priorities. Here's what I'm thinking about. It takes three minutes to read, 
everyone's got the time. There you know is I mean? there are more leaders actually that don't do that, and for whatever reason, I don't I don't know what it is, but I I love what you're stating there and how you're communicating with your staff. I'm talking about I don't care if you're a, a president, vice president, whatever the case may be. If you're out there communicating the way you're doing, where you're constantly stating how how you're doing against the objectives, here's how well we're doing against the metrics so far to date. Here's where we're falling behind, or these are the things that we're doing well. Oh, by the way, like you said, you share a personal experience of something you just did. I just got back from a meeting with XYZ. They're thrilled with some of the stuff that's going on within the organization, specifically what you know Team ABC is doing. I mean, wow, powerful, powerful stuff that you're doing. And by doing that, that then starts, in my opinion, really motivating those individuals to want to work harder for the company and maybe go above and beyond the call in terms of time, effort, energy, and everything else. And it was just a simple communication, a simple message. Dude, we saw it with, we had, so we had 30 so employees, but we had about 1,200 volunteer leaders that actually ran the chapters every day. These people with day jobs, right? We had so many of them that were spending more time every week working on their volunteer job at Team RWB than their actual job job. Because yep. you know their their company wasn't investing in them. They weren't giving them online leadership training. They weren't bringing them to leadership camps. They weren't following up with them. Right. They weren't writing them handwritten thank you notes saying, "Hey, kick ass job last week at that thing. I saw it on Facebook. Way to go!" And this is like, look, you write two thank you notes every day to start your day and send it off to volunteer leaders out there. These are little things, but it's communication. To your point, I mean, we have volunteers that are getting paid zero dollars running through brick walls. Yeah, making things happen, and there's there's magic in that that point. you can't. There's no there's no org structure. There's no you know lean six sigma. There's nothing. Nothing will get you that other than the personal communication and and the trust that that leaders can create. And I think all leaders can create it. By the way, this is not supernatural. Like I didn't. I certainly wasn't born. A great leader. When, but when I was finishing up college, I remember this was a, a painful lesson for me. I was I played on the golf team at West Point, so you can hold your laughter. But I was a really really good golfer. Hey, actually. golf golf is great. Yeah. What are you talking about? I mean, and so I, I played on the I played on the golf team, and I was um, get, going from my junior to my senior year, and I just sort of assumed that the team would vote me to be the team captain my senior year because yeah. I was I, I guess I was probably the best player of my classmates and and all that. And I thought I was, was good to go. And I got this stark realization when the, the email comes out from my coach, another guy was going to be the team, had been voted the team captain the next year. And I was like, a guy who barely played. And I was like, oh, man, what's up? And it wasn't, that guy was a great guy. So that's, that's all fine. Um, but basically, I, I was like, what happened here? So I started asking around a little bit. And a lot of guys on my team were like, hey, kind of an a-hole. Like, you, you talk about yourself a lot. You don't, you don't ask a lot of questions about how other guys are doing. You know, you think whatever you're doing is, is really like important and difficult, but other guys on the team are like also taking really hard majors and doing other stuff. And I was like, huh. And it was a, hu- it was a huge slap in the face. And I, I tell you, it, it changed my whole life because to this day, like I really try to make a point to be much more interested than I am interesting. But that, that kind of, right. no, but that kind of feedback <laughs> actually, like you yeah. said, it catapulted you. And, and, and I got a gift. Yeah, I mean, it really is. And I think that's uh, the struggle, again, a lot of leaders have in the things that you mentioned in terms of care and such is giving the proper feedback to the individuals of how well they're doing or not uh, doing so they can better themselves. Sure, it's going to be painful. It's going to be dif- difficult. And we all see it in performance evaluation timeframes where people do not sit down and have that type of open, frank communication to let the person know their strengths and weaknesses, where they can make improvements at and and possibly even a roadmap to success, you know, and give them that guidance, mentoring and coaching. Just imagine if that occurred more often, you'd have, again, more people who care about the organization, what they do, how they're contributing, adding more value. It's simple. It's really simple stuff we're talking about here. And you're like pointing out things that, you know, we all inherently know as leaders, especially service members, leaders that we're supposed to be doing and that we can carry in as we transition over to that side to help raise this. uh, Because constantly, I'm sure you've heard this too, is like veteran 
guys and gals going, oh, I, I, I despise getting in the civilian world and blah, blah, blah. But I'm like, well, what are you doing to fix it? Like, what solution are you providing? And, and these are the things that people need to hear and do. But where is that coming from? So to me, that's, a, again, it goes back to lack of information, ignorance and stuff, and not yeah. be, being, not having empathy to the other side to be able to sit down and bridge the divide. And I say that from both sides because I've lived on both sides. I was a civilian before I came military, yeah. and guess what? We're all going to become a civilian again at some point. And so you, you better embrace that and realize that that's yeah. there rather than saying it's an us and them type of environment. Again, you go back to... The care message that you just talked about, Blaine, you go through those steps and you start um, applying those same things introspectively before you get out. I think you're going to do a lot better in that separation than just assuming making these statements that you don't understand and going on the other side and then trying to fight that battle there. You're not going to win. You're not going to be successful. And and that's when depression, anger and everything else is going to start setting in. Yeah, Eric, I think you hit it on the head is that, look, if if folks don't understand you, you have an obligation equal to theirs, if not greater, to help them understand you. Right. You know, there's nothing nothing wrong with that. And I think service members often, veterans are are particularly bad about it. I I don't know why they think this. It doesn't make any sense when you really think about it. But it's like, how could you expect someone who's never met you or or maybe never met many people like you? to understand you or to get where you're coming from, like help them out, you know, help them understand where you're coming from. Maybe you could actually start to understand where they're coming from too, which would be a real (laughs) bonus. And like this stuff isn't, isn't that complicated. I think that this, this notion that if someone doesn't have the exact same shared experience as you, that they couldn't possibly understand you is total and utter bullshit. Yeah. Like, you know, on both sides, by the way, in my life. Absolutely. I've been through some hard things in my life. Other people have been through hard things in their lives, right. maybe even harder. <laughs> right. it's, not a comp- it's not a competition, but like we all have things that have been challenging. We all have insecurities. We all have these sort of pitfalls and challenges that have been part of our lives. And just because, you know, I experienced some pretty brutal combat doesn't mean that I can't still relate to you over a challenge that you've had in your, in your life. Or even if you've had nothing like that, yeah. me just sharing it with you can help you understand it and we can sort of move forward. So I just, I, it, this isn't as prevalent as it used to be, but you still see some of this like only a com- I've seen this in nonprofits, like only a combat veteran can understand another combat veteran. I'm like, this is, this is the reason that team RWB became, was the first big nonprofit to become open to civilian members because yeah. it was like, if our mission is to connect military veterans to the, to their community, it's awfully damn difficult if the community isn't there to connect them to, yeah. like, <laughs> we need these folks to show up. So that we can help to make that connection. And like people harpooned us in the early days. Like, you're a veterans organization, you're letting civilians in. I don't want to be a member of this crap. Like, you're letting civilians can wear the eagle and be members of Team RWB. I'm like, do you know these people? Have you met them? Right. <laughs> They're good people. We should be encouraging them to come be a part of this. Well, you know, you think what is it? Less than a half a percent or somewhere around a half a percent of Americans actually are on active service right now at this moment. So the number of veterans is large because you take in consideration all veterans that are living and, you know, you may have people that are still in their 80s and in such to this point or in 90s and so on and so forth. But um, my point here is how many billion people are in the world? How many billion people are in America? And then when you come off active duty, what percentage do you think you make up of the people when you get off the bus or off the plane or out of your car and you look around? You're like so small uh, in the in the grand scheme of things here. And yet you're you're wanting everybody to cater or to understand you and everything else. And you're not going forward and trying to make an effort to do the same. Like they got nothing else going on to do. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, and then it creates that Let me dual alienation. Yeah, sure. Sure. Yeah. 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 Because because you got people that are like, well, I, I can't identify with them because I'm not a quote unquote combat vet. And then you got guys. uh I can't identify with them because I'm not, I, I don't know how to act normal or something like that. Like it, it's like these gross exaggerations that we, you know, the self Darwinism starts occurring where, you know, if we would just put our walls down and realize, just like you were saying before, Blaine, we're all people like, yeah. although it may be apples and oranges in regards to troubles, there's still troubles. And then there's still triumphs. There's struggles, there's successes. Like we all have these, this way to like bridge that gap. Get over yourself. 
when I need to move a couch, I'll take anybody, right? Yeah. That's one of the, the things we always use as like a litmus test for a team RWB chapter. If it was, if it was healthy or not, like if somebody posts in the Facebook group that they got to move this weekend, are people showing up or not? And, you know, a healthy chapter, it'd be like, hey, I'm there, man. And that's, that's, I mean, if you want to distill and not to get too like sort of existential here, but I mean, if you want to just take a really quick check on if you're living a good life or not, I think that's a good one. You know, do you have people that will show up at your house on a weekend and move your furniture maybe for some pizza or beer as a bribery? bribery? Yeah. You know, if you've got, if you've got that, chances are life's okay. Yeah. You know, we don't need to make it that much more complicated. And and as a leader, I would say the same thing in any organization, civilian or military, um, you know, if it's something as simple as, hey, listen, I'd like for everybody to get together and do X, um, you know, after hours or whatever the case may be in a setting like what you're describing there, where they would have a choice and the people actually show up, then you know how good of a leader that you're actually being. Uh, The same thing applies. I. I think this is a great message, Blaine, and I really appreciate you coming on and sharing about, you know, the whole care. I love this whole thing, candor, authenticity, reliability, empathy. Um, I think it's a great acronym for people to remember. You need to hurry up and trademark that. Yeah. Yeah. So listen, I, it's so funny. I was thinking about this one day. I was literally driving my car and I stumbled upon this. I'm like, trust is it. Trust is it. I got to drill into this. This is the deal. What's, what's, what's going on? And so I, I came up with what I thought were the four things that were like, distilled down. These are the ones that matter most. Other things maybe matter, but these are the ones. And I had originally come up with reliability first because I thought it was the most underappreciated. I was like, oh, look, it's a race. What a cool acronym. <laughs> and I was sharing it with a friend of mine and he was like, you idiot, it's care. You should go with care. <laughs> and I'm like, oh shit, look at that. And so uh, yeah, so I have not, I have not, so if anyone's listening to this podcast, don't try to steal my shit. I haven't trademarked it yet. <laughs> well, actually, because it <laughs> goes on this it, because you're putting yeah. it out there, it actually somewhat is, right? Uh, because it's in the public domain now. There it is. That's right. property. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 So I promise I made that up out of my own, out of my own head. And I found it to be <laughs> very, very care. useful. Yeah. And it just, it just, and I feel so cheesy because it is an acronym. And I swear to God, I did not intend for it to be an acronym, but. It just sort of worked out, so maybe it's meant to be. It seems no, to be it's helpful. It's cliche, so. and it works. Yeah, no, actually, I, I had a boss that that's all he did was sit around all day, I swear, trying to come up with acronyms like things like this. So I, I'm, I'm actually happy to hear that it didn't come out that way. But uh, yeah. people are going to want to find more about you, Blaine, and how is it that they can learn more about how to get in contact with you and maybe pick your brain? Yes. So for sure. So I'm on, you can get me on LinkedIn. I'm just Blaine Smith. You can find me there. I'm always happy to connect with people in a professional capacity. Uh, I'm on kind of Facebook and Instagram and those kinds of things, but you're mostly just going to see pictures of like my, my kids and a skateboard or something like that. Maybe a a go ruck sandbag or whatever. Um, but yeah, uh, I don't, I don't have a website or anything fancy. I've, I've, like I said, I've been consulting for a while and I've, this is maybe a little counterintuitive, but I found it to be really good. Like I don't have a website or business cards or anything like that. I'm just kind of doing personal referrals. I've managed very fortunately to stay as busy as as I want to be. So if folks are interested in work with me, I'm, I'm happy to do it. Just grab me on LinkedIn and, uh, you know, happy to have a conversation. Or if you just want to chat, I'm happy to do that too. Yeah. Awesome, man. Again, appreciate you coming on and sharing your advice and opinions and everything. I think people can learn a lot from it. And uh, I think that the clear message here is to have trust as a leader, but also uh, to look introspectively, you know, make sure that you're challenging yourself and that you're, you're uh, taking your own advice first uh, and applying it. And uh, rather than just trying to put acronyms out there or fancy things and uh, never using it. So uh, wish you nothing but the best, Blaine, and uh, look forward to having you again on the podcast in the future. Yeah, thanks, y'all. I appreciate you having me on.